These are the generations of Jacob. Genesis 37 and verse 2 says, These are the generations of Jacob. An equivalent phrase might be, This is the story of the children of Israel. What follows is the story of the children of Israel. What we saw last time we were in Genesis is that Cain is left behind. The line of Seth, the story of the line of Seth is pursued. Ishmael, Esau are left behind. Jacob. The narrative of Jacob. The generations of Jacob. The children of Israel. This takes up the subject matter in the rest of the Bible. All the way from here in Genesis 37-2 to the end of Malachi. And even into Matthew chapter 1 where we read about the son of Abraham, the son of David. The story of the children of Israel. The story of Israel is the rest of the biblical story. The story of Joseph, which takes up basically the next 13 chapters, is introduced to us as this is the story of the children of Israel. The generations of Jacob. Let us know that it begins with a prophecy, this narrative that's introduced to us. Joseph would rule over his brothers. In Genesis, dreams are significant. God appears to various people in dreams, reveals things to them, He speaks to them. As we're about to see, even in uh, the pagan nation of Egypt, the cupbearer and the baker have a dream, which is meaningful. Uh, The Pharaoh himself has a dream, which is meaningful. In Genesis... Dreams, the dream, at least the dreams that are related to us, are not the products of eating too close to bedtime, an overactive digestive system. In Genesis, the dreams that are presented to us have spiritual significance. And Joseph had skill from God to interpret them. We see that later in the narrative with the dreams of the cupbearer, the baker, Pharaoh himself. These particular dreams that Joseph has here, though, don't take a rocket scientist to interpret. Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers may or may not have particular skill from the Lord in interpreting dreams. But whether or not they did this with divine help or whether they did this with a little bit of common sense, they got the meaning. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? And another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. Again, this is not rocket science. And Jacob, or Israel, rebukes Joseph and says, What is this dream that you have dreamed? 
Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? We come to see that these dreams were not daydreams. In other words, they didn't come from Joseph's wakeful, wishful thinking. Nor, as I said, were they products of eating a little bit too close to bedtime, too much cheese right before bed. These dreams were from God, with meaning. These dreams were substantially prophecies that the sun, the moon, and eleven stars would bow to Joseph. That the eleven sheaves would bow before the one sheaf that stood upright. Let us know that the story of the children of Israel begins with a prophecy of one who would rule over his brothers. What happens in the rest of the Joseph narrative? Genesis 37, 2-11 is fairly hard to interpret, fairly hard to understand without seeing how the Joseph narrative unfolds and ends. So with that in mind, just let me retell something of the main events of Joseph's life. There's this prophecy that he will rule over his brothers. And his brothers hate him for his father's favoritism, for this prophecy that he would rule over them. They resent this claim that Joseph indirectly makes to their fealty, to their loyalty, to their allegiance, to their deference. They resent him for this. And one day, Jacob, or Israel, sends Joseph to his brothers who are out in the pasture, far away from the homestead. And Joseph goes. His brothers see him from afar and conspire to kill him. So this isn't, this isn't the irritation of two little brothers like my children playing. This is, they hate him and they want him dead. They want to rid the earth of him. Reuben convinces them to throw him in a pit. He intends secretly to come back for him and release him, probably tell him to make a run for it. But in the meantime, what happens is they sell him to the Midianites, they figure, well, we'll be rid of him, which is our goal, and we'll be that much better off for it. We'll be richer for it. Why not make a profit in getting rid of him? And so they sell him to the Midianites instead. Note that basically at this point, Joseph in their minds is as good as dead. In their minds, all of the prophecies are going to come to naught. There's no way that their sheaves will bow before the sheaf of Joseph now that he's as good as dead. Now that he is sold to the Midianites. Later on, we read that the cupbearer forgot about him. We'll come to that in greater detail in a minute. But note that at this juncture, his brothers also forget about him. 
Joseph is as good as dead and forgotten. Forgotten by his brothers. It seems that all hope that the prophecy would be fulfilled is lost. He's as good as dead. He's forgotten. What happens to Joseph in the meantime though? He's sold into the house of Potiphar, who was an officer of Pharaoh. And he meets with success. Great success. He manages Potiphar's household so well that Potiphar basically entrusts everything to him. He's Potiphar's right-hand man. He does well. Potiphar's will prospers in his hand. Well, his brothers have forgotten about him. Well, those who hated him have written him off as as good as dead. He's doing something profitable. We know the story, many of us do at least, of what happened next. Potiphar's wife tries to seduce him. But Joseph, being a godly man, says, How can I do such a thing and sin against God? She, she makes up a lie and tells Potiphar that he tried to seduce her. And Potiphar throws him in prison. Now he's the suffering servant in prison for something he didn't do. The innocent treated as guilty. But he meets with success in prison. Somehow, don't ask me how that process even started. He begins getting some responsibility and doing well with the responsibility such that he actually, as a prisoner, basically becomes in charge of the prison. I don't know how ancient Egyptian prisons were, but to me that's remarkable success. If I was incarcerated, even though I think I'm a fairly competent man and I have integrity and so on and so forth, I, if I was thrown in dodds, I don't think that I'd be running it within a few years. The cupbearer of Pharaoh, the baker, end up in the prison with Joseph. And they have a dream. The cupbearer dreamed that there was a vine before him. And on the vine, three branches. And as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in his hand. And he took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph says the three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. And so get me out of this house. That dream comes true, and the cupbearer is restored. He forgets Joseph, though, and Joseph remains stuck in the prison. The baker has a dream also, that the birds eat bread out of the basket on his head. And Joseph accurately interprets that also. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. The cupbearer goes back to his station. The baker is killed. 
as the dreams revealed, but Joseph is forgotten. He's still as good as dead. Even though he's meeting with great success behind the scenes, in his father's mind, in his brother's mind, he's as good as dead. The prophecy seems that it will never be fulfilled. Here's Joseph in an Egyptian prison. (laughs) But after a while, Pharaoh has a couple of troubling dreams. Skinny cows, seven of them that eat the fat cows. And also skinny, thin ears of corn that eat up the fat ones. The cupbearer remembers now Joseph and mentions him to Pharaoh, explaining that just as his dream, his just as Joseph's interpretation of the cupbearer's dream was fulfilled exactly in the cupbearer's restoration, so the baker's dream was fulfilled exactly. And he says to Pharaoh, basically, Joseph will be able to interpret your dreams for you. So Pharaoh says, go get him from prison. What you find is that the one who was forgotten, who was as good as dead, of whom the prophecy seemed that it would never be possible to be fulfilled, is now raised up to be made a ruler as he interprets Pharaoh's dream accurately and gains responsibility as he had in Potiphar's house over the whole land of Egypt. Now what you find is that his brothers are needy. They're hungry and in need of forgiveness. They've done him wrong. They hated him. They killed him without cause. And they now need to be given life. They come to Egypt, meet with their brother, whom in their minds was as good as dead, who was forgotten, but has now been raised up, and who has ascended to the right hand of the one who reigns in that place. The prophecy that he would rule over his brothers is fulfilled in the most unlikely way. He rules over them benevolently. He rules over them savingly. Providing for them. Nourishing them. And He brings them to Himself. That where He is, there they may be also. You see the contours of a very familiar story? In the unfolding narrative of Joseph... Do you see the contours? This is the story of the children of Israel. This is the story of the children of Israel. This is it. 
It's told over and over and over and over again on every page of Scripture. This is the story of the children of Israel. This is what happens to the generations of Jacob. This is what happens to the children of Israel. You see, there is a prophecy at the beginning. There's a prophecy way back at the beginning in Genesis chapter 3 that one of the woman's descendants would crush the serpent's head. But all the way back to Abraham after Genesis 3 we see clearer, more focused promises. Kings that will come from his loins. A seed in whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. We find that prophecy repeated again and again. With greater clarity as the Old Testament develops. We soon find that this ruler would come from the tribe of Judah. That he would be born in Bethlehem. Jesus arrives on the scene. And there's a conspiracy to kill him. He's crucified. He's as good as dead. Everyone who hated him because of the claim that he had to their fealty, their loyalty, everyone who killed him thought that now there's no way that this man can rule over us. He was forgotten in the grave. Even in Luke 24, he was forgotten to some extent by his own disciples. We had hoped we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. The disciple says. But, alas, he's as good as dead. He's in the tomb. There's no way. But what was happening behind the scenes as he was forgotten by those who killed him? He was meeting with success as Joseph met with success in Egypt. In Hebrews 9.24 We read that Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear before God, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. You see, when Jesus was laid in the tomb and forgotten, he was meeting with success behind the scenes, as Joseph did in Potiphar's house and then in the prison. Joseph's brothers forgot him, but Joseph was succeeding in what he was doing. Jesus 
enemies forgot about him. His brothers, in fact, which we'll talk about in a moment, those he came to save, forgot about him. But he was meeting with success in what he was doing. Around Easter, we looked at Isaiah 53. And what does it say? It says that when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. You see, when he made an offering for guilt, he was forgotten, he was left for dead. But the will of the Lord was prospering in his hand as he appeared in that heavenly temple. Not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own. Pleading his righteousness. Pleading the propitiation that he made on the cross. For our sake. He was meeting with success. And then, just as Joseph was in due time raised to power. So was Christ. He was raised up from the grave. Those who thought they killed him had to reckon with his resurrection, with his ascension. In fact, as Jacob, Israel himself, didn't want Joseph dead, but thought he was and thought there was no hope. He had to reckon with the ascension of the resurrection, so to speak, and the ascension of his son. So those who loved Jesus on Sunday had to reckon with what happened. But raised he was, no longer forgotten, raised to power, as Acts 2 says, to sit at the right hand of God on David's throne. And Jesus left us with a promise that he goes to prepare a place for us, that where he is, there we may be also. Again, do you see the similarity? Remember what I said at the beginning. These are the generations of Jacob. It's just another way of saying this is the story of the children of Israel. It's told over and over and over again in the pages of Scripture. In many different ways, but this is what it's all telling us. Jesus is prophesied explicitly. He's typified as he is here in Joseph's life, prefigured. There are stories which thematically point to this story, undergird, develop, augment, complement, fill out our understanding. But all of it is telling us the story, the story of the children of Israel. These are the generations of Jacob. I have some reservations about the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones. But one wonderful thing about it is its Christ-centered view of the Bible. The tagline of her book is, Every story whispers his name. 
And you can easily and certainly see that truth here in the Joseph narrative. It whispers his name. The takeaway then is the implicit answer to the question of Joseph's brothers or the questions of Joseph's brothers. Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? The implicit answer is yes. He will. He will indeed reign and rule over you. Joseph would indeed rule and reign over them. We see that come to pass in the unfolding of the next 13 chapters of Genesis, which we're going to look at in more detail. But one thing we see is that Christ will indeed rule and reign over us as Joseph ruled and reigned over them. Joseph's rulership prefigures Christ's rulership. And to that I say hallelujah. Because we are the brothers who killed our brother. We are the hungry men who need to appeal to a benevolent sovereign in order to get some bread of life. If Jesus is prefigured by the rulership of Joseph, then to that I say hallelujah. Because what we see is that Joseph is a benevolent ruler. He doesn't rule at the expense of the well-being of the Egyptians. He doesn't rule at the expense even of his murderous brothers. He rules for the sake of the Egyptians. He rules for the sake of his murderous brothers. And if Joseph is meant to prefigure Christ, then that tells me that I can go to him. And he's going to use his rulership, his reign for me. He's going to give me what I need. He's going to give me that which makes for life. He's going to open up the storehouses for me. As Joseph opened up the storehouses for those over whom he ruled. But not only is Joseph, and by extension Jesus, the benevolent ruler. Joseph, and by extension Jesus, is the forgiving brother. Hebrews 2, 10 and 11 reads like this. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many sons to glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus is our brother who is bringing many sons to glory. So what we see is that we 
who are being brought to glory are like the brothers who threw Joseph in the pit, who sold him into slavery to the Midianites. We didn't deserve to go into his throne room and find bread, let alone forgiveness. But just as his brothers, who didn't deserve bread, let alone forgiveness, found both in the presence of the ascended king, so we find both in the presence of the ascended king, our brother. He is a benevolent ruler, and he is a forgiving brother. We may go to Jesus. Our sheaves may bow before that one sheaf that stands upright. The eleven stars may bow before him and find that he's prepared to open up the storehouses to us. He's prepared to forgive us, to reconcile with us. It was my sin that held him there, as we say. It was my sin that held him there. Simeon, Levi, Judah, even Reuben. It was my sin that put my brother in the hands of the Midianites. It was my sin that put him into slavery in Potiphar's house. It was my sin that put him into an Egyptian prison. It was my sin that put Christ Jesus on the cross. It was my sin that held him there. They had every reason to tremble when they found out it was Joseph. We have every reason to tremble when we hear that the one that we killed has been risen, has been raised, has been exalted to the right hand of God. But what we find is that He's ready to open up the storehouses for us. He's ready to forgive us. He knows, He knows that though we meant it for evil, God meant it for good. The sovereignty of God made the promise in the beginning. And the sovereignty of God guided the process every step of the way. Such that His servant suffered and then was exalted. And the risen, ascended one knows that it was the will of God that it should be such for our sake. Jesus is a forgiving king, a benevolent king, a generous king, and a forgiving brother. Foreshadowed, typified, prefigured by Joseph in this narrative. According to God's promise, Christ Jesus shall indeed rule and reign, savingly, benevolently, forgivingly over us, as Joseph was exalted to reign, so 
over his brothers. And this is good news for sinners like us.